Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 19th of October 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by David Scott and Debbie Evans. Now we'll get straight on with uh, the inflation figure. So inflation up to 10.1% uh, announced today, well, yesterday by the ONS. Uh, so cost of living went up to 10.1% in the 12 months of September, uh, driven mostly by food prices. Uh, so let's have a look and see. There's the, uh, the graph that shows uh, how it's gone. Now, obviously, last month uh, there was a slight fall. Uh, but it's certainly back on track for this month. That's uh, uh, CPI, CPIH, which is including households and so costs and so on. Uh, but if we look at uh, the main issue here, it is food prices. Uh, and so we can see that uh, food and non-alcoholic beverages, the inflation was actually 14.6%. Uh, so that's quite a staggering uh, number. Now, the thing that kept inflation down to 10.1% uh, was fuel prices. Uh, so if you look at the graph for that, you can see quite a steep fall in uh, the motor fuels uh, aspect of this. Uh, but anybody who's been paying attention to the uh, forecourts in the past week knows that that's already reversed uh, and has, I think, uh, uh, the cost of diesel, for example, I think has gone up about 10 pence a litre in the last uh, seven days or so. Uh, so, David, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, we have uh, continuing inflation and uh, no end, in fact, in sight. Uh, if we think back a year to, to Andrew Bailey saying, oh, it's only a short-term thing, it'll it'll sort itself out imminently. Um, transitory. Met, transitory was the word they yeah, all so were met, using. People, it's transitory. Do it. Many people suggesting Liz Truss should go, but perhaps there's a few others need to go too. Well, this is this is from the this is in the week where the man most directly responsible for this, Ben Bernanke, got given the Nobel Prize for Economics. You cannot make it up, right? It's it's it's. I mean, it is actually funny. I, I saw there was a an interview with a veteran and one a veteran investor now based out in Thailand, and he couldn't keep a straight face. He was also, uh, Mark Faber is his name. He's excellent, and he, he was unable he was unable to describe Ben Bernanke's uh, Nobel Prize in Economics without bursting into laughter, and. <laughs> And we've got a situation where, yeah, 10.1%, but for many families, it's going to be a lot worse, and it's going up, and there is no end in sight, and it's been caused by uh, all the, the economic policies we've, we've had since, since 2010-11, right? which has all been about printing money, increasing the money supply, goosing the economy, creating bubbles, making everyone feel better, and reaping the political benefits, short-term political benefits, at some point the bill comes due. And unfortunately, it's going to be the ordinary people of Great Britain and, in fact, the whole Western world, if not the whole globe, who will end up having to pay it. The good times appear to be over. Well, indeed, and just to reiterate, of course, it is the staples of life that are suffering the worst. And if food inflation is 14%, uh, that's going to be very hard for people. This is, I mean, very hard as an under, understatement because there's a lot of people who are on the point of the, everything that could be economised is already gone. Everything that can be cut back, everything that's discretionary is already gone. And this has been a, this has been the situation in the Western world for a generation. People just haven't realised it. Everything that can be cut back is cut back. And there's not much left to cut. So you then get food, food inflation goes up 14% or more. 
what what do people who are really on the breadline do? Well, yeah. badly is is what they do. Well, indeed. Uh, so let's uh, come on to Liz Truss then. And of course, she's just uh, had a prime minister's questions, which was another disgraceful episode. Uh, we might talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but uh, you're you've, you're starting off here with the uh, Financial Times and uh, Liz backing down on 45p tax cut. Well, well, this this is a bit of this is a walk a walk down memory lane. This was uh, two weeks ago, and at this point we'd only we'd only uh, reversed one policy, and uh, I thought it would be nice just to refresh our memories that there was a time when it was only one policy that was reversed, uh, and that was the start of the collapse of her entire program, um, and it's it's accelerated from there. So we've now got there's all with Liz Trust. There's always like one talking point that she's obviously been, she's obviously adopted and it's it's been drilled into it by the spin doctors. It was hit the ground running uh, when she was campaigning to get the job as prime minister. She was going to hit the ground running. We kept hearing that phrase. So the phrase we keep hearing now is "I'm sorry." Mistakes happen. I'm sorry. Here we see uh, it being re uh, repeated by foreign secretary. Um, uh, James Cleverly, and he said, mistakes happen, but replacing Liz Truss will not calm the markets. And and we've got this, we're, we're admitting our mistakes now. Um, more on that story just in a moment, but we're, we're sorry and we're admitting our mistakes, and that's, that's the line we're following. Um, and then we've got the whole issue of the triple lock. Now, this, this came out in Prime Minister's Question Times. Uh, just but just before player. you go on, David, just just explain because some people will not know what the triple lock is, particularly if they're not in the UK. Right. So I beg your pardon. The, the the triple lock is a guarantee that the pension, the state pension provision, will go up by the minimum of two and a half percent, or the level of average wage increases, or the level of inflation. Right. So that's to say we're going to we're going to gradually increase the value of the pensions over time relative to um, the average wages. So we're going to improve the position of of the pensioners, and we're saying that it's one of the, one of the three locks is is, is um, price inflation. Therefore, the real value under any set of circumstances, the real value of that pension uh, cannot go down. Uh, if you buy, if you believe that the, the, the CPI is a is a fair measure of. Uh, the, the actual spending of pensioners. Um, so that's the triple lock, um, and it costs a lot of money, and it's going to cost an awful lot of money this year. Um, the Telegraph here is is saying it was it would um, the difference between um, increasing in line with inflation, increasing in line with wages, is something like four hundred and thirty pounds per pensioner uh, for the year. So that this adds up to. Um, a huge amount across uh, across the uh, the government budget as a whole, and you see here just what the pension increases have been over time, right? So it's either been inflation or the two and a half percent guarantee or wage growth, and that means that we that pensions have been growing up at something between two and a half and four, and occasionally a little bit more than four percent per annum. Um, but they're going to have to go up by ten point one percent because it's based on the CPI. Uh, for September, the current figures. So we're going to have to put the pensions up 10%, which will knock another huge hole in the uh, in, in the government's budget. Uh, this was raised by the epically incompetent uh, Mr. Blackford of the SNP at Prime Minister's Question Time just half an hour ago. Uh, and he asked a question about this. And his follow-up question assumed there'd be some 
obfuscating hedge uh, fence-sitting answer from the Prime Minister. And when she turned around and said, no, no, we're keeping the triple lock, uh, we're committed to this, we're not going to change it, um, um, Blackford led, read out his pre-prepared -pre -pre scripted second follow-up question, which assumed a different answer on the part of the Prime Minister. And he looked like an idiot. And I'd say that this is one of many examples of the opposition looking like idiots. I was expecting to tune into Prime Minister's questions and see her shredded and see her basically moving one step, for, one step closer to a new job or to losing the job she's got anyway. And it didn't happen. There was no effect of opposition in there, despite everything that's happening. It was quite an astonishing display, not by Liz Truss, who was Liz Truss, but by all the opposition who really didn't manage even today to put a glove on her. It was it was bizarre. Yes. OK, well, uh, now yesterday, Liz Truss gave an interview to the BBC and uh, well, we've got some thoughts on that, perhaps. Yes, I've got I've got three short clips, and I'd like to just just take them in turn and have a little chat about what we're seeing here. So, uh, the the first one is um, is about the general situation. Will you lead the Conservatives into the next general election? I will lead the Conservatives into the next general election. Definitely. Well, look, yeah. I'm not focused on internal debates within the Conservative Party. But you need to be, don't I you? Am know, focused you know you need to be in order to stay in office. The important thing is that I've been elected to this position to deliver for the country. We are facing very tough times. We simply cannot afford to spend our time talking about the Conservative Party rather than what we need to deliver. And that is my message to my colleagues. So back on message, back to the Spin Doctor's message. That's my message. We're not going to talk about internal party divisions. We're going to talk about the job that needs doing. Right. So that's what they told her to say. That's what she said. But when I actually asked, are you sure? And she laughed. I take that to mean, no, she's not sure. How could she be sure? Uh, it's all hanging by a thread and she knows it. Uh, what did you make of that, gentlemen? Well, she's just not capable of doing the job. I mean, the interviewer there needs to be put in his place because the uh, arrogance came across pretty strongly for me. And at the end of the day, his job is to get facts out to the public. But she's not capable of dealing with it because I'm going to suggest she's got nothing in her head. The only things that are in her head are sound bites which are given to her, but she can't actually deal with the situation as it is. Uh, David, it, it seems to me that uh, for different reasons, we have a very similar head of uh, notional head of state uh, as the United States at the moment in terms of capability. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's an unfortunate thought. Yeah, but, but you might be right. Uh, well, we've got another example here of sound bites and uh, Liz Trust in action. Lots of people are facing massive increases in mortgage payments and analysts say at least some of that is because of what you've done in the last five or six weeks. What do you say to them? Well, look, I understand it is very difficult for families across the country. And they're blaming you. And the, the fact is we are facing both a difficult economic situation internationally where interest rates are rising, as well as pressure, pressure here in pressure here in Britain. So what we've got here is complete inco incoherence and economic incompetence, right? 
we, we, she says, oh, we're in a situation that's very unfortunate. Interest rates are rising. Yeah, from zero, Liz. They've never been this low before, ever. The rising, maybe towards the normal level, right? Anyone who bought a house thinking the mortgage would be based on a zero central bank interest rate and they'd get their mortgage for one or two or two and a half percent or something needs to have their bumps felt because the long the long term average for this is, you know, six, seven percent. That's that's generally what's been paid in the past. The current crazy situation couldn't be continued, but it has been continued for six by, by the last several governments because of their own self-interest. And it and it was continued disastrously during COVID with the wholehearted support of every opposition party in the country. No one was really talking about the fact that this is going to bankrupt the nation. And here we are. So did she, did she say anything truthful about that? No. Did she give any actual explanation of what's happening? No. Did she say what she's sorry for and get it right? No. It, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, indeed. And, Mike, and, what do you, what do you, well, what, do you what I would say to that is, uh, you know, you, you said there's no political opposition. There's no media opposition either, there's, no. Or, there's no media challenge because you've just described certain facts there. And, and what should have happened when she said that this is an international economic disaster that we're in, he should have immediately come back and said, well, how did that happen? How much, how much did COVID policies uh, create that situation? How much did uh, money Russia printing sanctions. create that situation? How much did sanctions on Russia create that? But no, he just passes it on. Uh, to the next question, yeah, and, be, and that because, was not asked. Yeah, because the BBC was a cheerleader for the COVID uh, regulations and the, and the lockdown and the money printing, and it was a cheerleader for the war in, on Russia. And therefore, these things cannot now be criticised because the media have sold their soul to that particular very harmful line. We've got one last clip. I, I, I didn't think that any more than three would be fair. One more clip. Who is to blame for this mess? Well, first of all, I do want to accept responsibility and say sorry for the mistakes that have been made. Uh, I wanted to act, but to help people with their energy bills, uh, to deal with the issue of high taxes, but we went too far and too fast. So, firstly, the line is, apologise. Say you feel people's pain. So that's what the spin doctor's told her, and that's what she's doing. Okay? But it doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense at all. Neither the premise of the question from the BBC, nor the answer. And then they've got this, um, uh, you know, we, we feel your pain, and we went too far and too fast. Too far? What? What? Only taking 19% of people's incomes too far. So she's completely abandoned any principle that she might have been operating under, and it seems that she wasn't. But she's completely abandoned any principle. She didn't actually try and defend the tax cuts when they, when they first came under fire. She certainly didn't have any plan for cutting the government, which is what actually needs to happen. Um, and we're just playing, what, word games? What do you make of it, gentlemen? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I, I'm, I know what's coming next, if I, if I may. Yeah. So... Uh, I think we've got to look a little bit deeper, David, and we've got to start asking ourselves who's actually running things. Is it 
uh, Liz Truss and the politicians. One of our viewers has just dis has described uh, Parliament and the MPs as a, uh, as a disgrace, uh, saying they're inhuman, ignorant, arrogant and corrupt. Uh, well, of course, we need some evidence to prove all of that of each one of them. But I get the sentiment. But who is in control? Well, we've got to thank a UK column viewer for giving us a little heads up on this. Uh, so we've got a recent announcement that the government is to establish an expert economic advisory council. So I think I think we shouldn't worry, Mike, no, at no, all. Nothing to worry um, about. Let's put all. a bit of meat on this. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunters, today, that was Monday, the 17th of October, announced that he will convene an expert panel of respected <laughs> economists as part of a new economic advisory council um, as committed to by Prime Minister Liz Truss. So um, we've seen the state of her head, but now we're seeing a few people behind the scenes. Let's see how it comes together. The council will act as a consultative forum for the government to be advised on UK and international economies and financial markets. The council will consist of leading and respected economists and will be attended by the chancellor and the treasury's chief economic advisor. The first council members are announced today with further members to be added in due course. All members will be attending in an independent capacity. Excellent. Excellent. Don't worry at all. They're independent and have been chosen for their personal knowledge and expertise as relevant to advising the government on the UK economy. Um, so we're going to ask straight away who will keep the minutes. But let's look at the meat of the thing. Here's the terms of reference. Um, so the council is going to act as a consultative forum for the government to be advised on those international economics and financial markets. And down here, <clears throat> excuse me, it gets interesting. Members will be invited in an individual capacity and will not act as representatives of other organisations with which they might be affiliated. So, so basically, as soon as they walk out the door of this other organization, they immediately become independent immediately? Apparently. So we're right. told, Mike, it gets interesting when we have a look at the people themselves. So those terms of reference, very short, they go on to ways of working. It says that uh, the council will be advisory, will hold no policy or decision-making powers. Its advice will be given direct to the chancellor the advice and information flow will be one way from the members to the Chancellor. Now, I think this is pretty accurate here. I think this is where the Chancellor is going to be told exactly what he can and can't do, but it'll be done in a very polite way. I'll come back to you in a second, David, because I can see you smiling. Um, so let's reinforce that advice and information flow will be one way. David, before we have a look at the figures concerned, these independent, trustworthy economic advisors, what's your feeling on this so far? Well, I, I, uh, I'm a big fan of Yuri Maltsev, who worked for the two largest bureaucracies in the world. He used to work as economic advisor to the Soviet Union. And uh, during those days that uh, he was in the, the, the economic think tank, he said there wasn't much thinking, but there's plenty of tanking. And he used to meet Gorbachev, and Gorbachev would, would tell him what the policy was. No one took any advice. No one listened to it. Um, so this is, a, a, this is a, a large failing bureaucracy looking for a fig leaf of uh, respectability um, by assembling a, 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 quote, economic advisory team. When we start following the policies of the formerly 
uh, late and not lamented Soviet Union, you know things are not going entirely well, Brian. <laughs> okay, well, we're on to dictatorships a little bit later in the news, but let's have a look at the people concerned. And first of all, we better put Jeremy Center there. We've given him a nice glowing background because he's a very important figure at the moment. So here's number one, Element Capital, and we've got a guy called Gergen Flia, if I pronounce that correctly. Now, he's interesting because um, not only is Element Capital handling a, a, a cool $16 billion, um, he happens to be former Bank of England policymaker. So he's been working with the government in the past very closely. Um, but uh, that's quite a small one there, 16 billion. Let's bring it over to this side. Uh, we've got a gentleman, Rupert Harrison from BlackRock. And BlackRock declares that it has 500 billion under its control. So he's going to be giving, of course, excellent independent advice. Uh, we've got JP Morgan um, and uh, this particular lady here uh, also has been working previously back in 2017 with the Chancellor of the Exchequer. I've missed her name off. I'll, I will find that shortly. And uh, if we come over to this one, which is particularly interesting, it's Dr. Sushil Wadhani with $1.3 trillion under control of what seems to be his, his private trust. I can't really get my head around it. But the thing to remember is essentially all these people are only thinking of us and the poor people. Yeah, I'm sure they are. Uh, they're yes. going to be working for us. I'm just going to pop this one in because we've also got to remember the links through to the Bank of International Settlement. But they are all independent. They're experts. These are upstanding people and they're going to advise poorer people how they can feed themselves. This is what Mr. Hunt had to say on the matter. I look forward to working with such an esteemed group of economic experts whose advice will be invaluable. And uh, pop this one in. In a period of global economic challenge and volatility, volatility, uh, volatility thank you, exacerbated by Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine, they have to get it in. Prioritising UK economic stability is vital and will underpin long-term growth. Uh, well, I'm just going to remind people that UK column was flagging up the work of the Bank of International Settlements alongside the Bank of England and Andrew Bailey, who had a foot in both camps. But just to reassure people, um, this is uh, part of BlackRock's advertising on its website, and they're saying that well, it's never been about them. Oh, they, really, only, right? they only really care about us and they care about the future. Now, we've taken the little video clip, which is the little boy on the right of the screen. Uh, let's, let's watch that clip and listen very carefully to what BlackRock says it's really interested in. Every great idea, every breakthrough started with a question. Someone asked the why poked holes in the way things are to see what they could become. And right now, the world is facing some big questions about how to push forward without leaving people behind, how to break with the past and create a better future. So on behalf of more and more people, BlackRock is asking bigger questions, bolder questions, questions that challenge convention and give rise to new thinking. Questions like, how can valuing workers more increase a company's value? And how can the economy go green without putting communities in the red? 
Because the bigger questions we ask, the bigger actions we can take. Helping us tackle the biggest question of them all. How can we all prosper? BlackRock, ask bigger questions. Well, they are. I picked up from that straight away that we're going to push forward. That's not exactly defined, but we're going to move forward. We're going to break with the past. And uh, what else are we going to do? We're going to get into a way of new thinking. So this is the type of agenda that's going to be pushed in the back door through to the chancellor. And I don't get a warm feeling about any of this, David, because I don't think it's going to help the poor people feed themselves or it's going to be looking after people in our completely destroyed NHS system. Well, I mean, the, the list of people you, you gave there was very surprising because they're all they're all basically asset managers, aren't they? I mean, they're all they're all fund managers of one sort and another. And it, I just looked up as we were talking, the definition of a conflict of interest, a situation in which a person is in a position to derive personal benefit from actions or decisions made in their official capacity. Um, the, this that list of people assumes that the interests of the hedge funds and the interests of the people of the ordinary working people and the pensioners and everyone else who might be struggling to make ends meet are the same well they're not because the hedge funds require asset values to be held high how are we how are we holding out asset values high by inflation who's paying for the inflation the poor people these, th this is a, a committee made up of the very people who have a vested interest in the thing that is destroying the economy. I, I don't see this being helpful, to put it mildly. No. Okay, David, thank you for that. Well, let's bring in Debbie, because, of course, uh, the big hedge funds are very keen on all matters pharmaceutical and genetic at the moment, because they can make lots of money out of it. But uh, what have you been looking at, Debbie? Well, I've been just uh, wondering what the public spending cuts are, are going to be and how they're all going to uh, affect us, including possibly the rise of prescription charges. But then I find that the UK HSA, uh, the UK Health Security Agency, are advertising for a senior diversity and inclusion advisor. Now, this is £46,000 a year. And apparently, um, the, the government, you know, despite promising to crack down on wokery, feel that this appointment is necessary. So this is £46,000. But if anybody wants to apply, it's flexible. You can work from home. And uh, apparently the message or the banner is, let's talk about race. So the UK HSA obviously not having a problem with their budget. Good stuff. And then what about the health protection report? Well, this is very interesting. Uh, many people might know that the UK HSA are having their annual conference, and this was being held in Leeds yesterday and today. And um, we can see on the right-hand side, Dr. Jenny Harris, um, of the picture there, top right. And I just want to remind people, Dr. Jenny Harris is actually not just the CEO or Dame Jenny Harris as she is now. It's not just the CEO of the UK HSA, but she's also uh, the second permanent secretary to the Department of Health. Now, she didn't know that she was going to be appointed as that until she agreed to the appointment. Um, she also used to be on the JCVI, so she's very vaccine um, knowledgeable, supposedly. And she was also a deputy chief medical officer. So 
you know, all of a sudden she's been accelerated to this massive post. Now, I will navigate people to a, a, Royal, a Royal Society of Medicine lecture that was held last year um, in June 2021, where Professor Simon Wesley was talking to her. And she said that the role of the UK HSA was as important as GCHQ as important. She also said that the role of the UK HSA was to keep communities secure. Now we've looked for a long time at the UK HSA and, and you know Mike I don't know whether you want to come in now because you've been talking about fusion for a long time and clearly we can see that we've got a fusion of health and security and Jenny Harris and Chris Whitty were apparently present at this um, and I think there's been quite a bit of, um, I think there's been quite a bit of backlash actually. So I'd be really interested if anybody was in Leeds um, from UK Column or that's one of the UK Column viewers or listeners, we would love to hear from you because quite clearly the spooks, and that's what Jenny Harris has, has really admitted that the UK HSA is, it's spooks. So the spooks have spoken, Christopher Whitty and, and Dame Jenny Harris, and also the people have spoken. So that is the banner on the right-hand side. So if anybody was there, we would love to hear from you, please. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's right, Debbie. Uh, if we look, you know, the, uh, uh, we're gonna come on to uh, bulk data collection and other things later on, uh, but, but this is really what the UK HSA is about, is, is bulk data collection and it's a form of surveillance, just like GCHQ. So it's not surprising they're using this type of language. But look, let's move on to uh, all-cause mortality because the, uh, Office for National Statistics has uh, released their latest numbers. Uh, and if we look on the right-hand side again, we find another week uh, of excess mortality uh, with very little comment in the media about it. Uh, nobody seems to care anymore about the number of uh, excess deaths at all. Um, and uh, well, I just, I showed some of these uh, graphics uh, that I'm about to show uh, on Extra a couple of weeks ago, but I thought the, the general UK column news audience should see this as well. And I want to get your thoughts on this, Debbie, uh, because what is the cause of this excess mortality? If we look uh, here from the Office for Health Improvement and Disparities, they are showing a bit of a breakdown uh, of, of it. So we've got excess mortality in uh, with uh, ischemic uh, heart disease, uh, we have uh, cardi uh, cerebrovascular diseases here. We've got excess mortality there. Uh, we have excess mortality happening uh, in other circulatory diseases and also with respect to heart failure. Uh, but one area where I was a little surprised that we didn't have more because it's actually not far away from what was expected and that is with cancer. So Debbie, I've been wondering over the last uh, number of weeks, uh, you know, what is the main driver of the excess mortality that's going on at the moment. Uh, and I was assuming, uh, because there really isn't any definitive information to be had about it, that it was uh, being caused by, uh, you know, the, the lack of cancer treatment and so on. That certainly has been uh, suggested in the media that cancer patients are, are dying. But in fact, this data seems to show that it's not that. It's more heart related uh, than anything else. And of course, that brings us back to the question of Vaccines, and just before you get to your comment, I just want to make this point. If we look through the mainstream press, uh, the Guardian coverage of this, over 330,000 excess deaths in Great Britain linked to austerity. So it's not vaccines, it's austerity. Here's another Guardian article. Oh, they don't know anymore because this headline is, well, it's Debbie Shredar actually. And of course she wouldn't want to mention vaccines at all. What's behind the mystery? It's a mystery of thousands of excess deaths this summer 
uh, and here's new scientist. There are thousands more UK deaths than usual, and we don't know why. And Debbie, the, the point is, of course, we don't know why if we don't consider the possibility uh, that vaccination may be a key driver of this and we don't actually look to see. Exactly that. And you know what? This has always been the big message, hasn't it? Whereas uh, Professor Munir Permahamid is saying that the serious adverse reactions that we're seeing are coincidental. We don't know that because we haven't ever had an investigation. We haven't been carrying out post-mortems. Many people who are dying currently aren't even associating their illness with a serious adverse reaction until we get an investigation. And I mean, an investigation like today wouldn't be a day too soon. In fact, it's uh, two years too late. But until we get an investigation, we are never going to be able to eliminate it. So therefore, I, I believe it still has to be on the table. And I would also ask, slightly controversially perhaps, um, but for people's thoughts on many people suffering from long COVID and are dying as a result, could be suffering from serious adverse reactions as well. But that's for another news, perhaps. Yes. OK, thank you, Debbie. Any thoughts? Well, I mean, we've said, said it all, really. Um, we've pointed out all of this data. It's official data. There needs to be an investigation, but it needs to be a proper investigation and not the usual whitewash. Uh, David. Just one quick, I've been flicking through the, the Office of Health Improvement and Disparities version of this data, and they've lots of graphs and you can change the, the, the nature of the graph quite quickly. It is interesting that the least deprived people seem to be suffering more from excess mortality than any other group, and it's not the most deprived. Isn't that odd? Yeah, well, indeed. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to uh, this. Um, so we've shown this graphic uh, several times, we're going to keep showing it, but I, I want to highlight that this is a clutch of legislation which has either gone through in recent uh, years or is about to go through, which we're labelling dictatorship. And the one that I want to highlight today is the National Security Bill. And the reason for that is that the government has announced that for the first time, new legislation will compel those acting for a foreign power or entity to declare political influencing activity and criminalise those who do not. Uh, the change is being brought about by the Foreign Influence Registration Scheme, which is being introduced as an amendment to the National Security Bill. Uh, here's what Tom Tugendhat had to say about this, who's Security Minister, saying, unfortunately, there are people working in secret to undermine the UK's democracy and cause harm to our citizens. For years, I've advocated for these, the establishment of a Foreign Influence Registration Scheme to deter foreign powers from uh, pursuing their pernicious aims through the covert use of agents and proxies. Uh, and, uh, well, who else spoke about it? Well, Ken McCallum from MI5. The UK is in strategic contest with states that seek to undermine our national security, democratic institutions and commercial advantage at an unprecedented scale. We need new modern tools and powers to defend ourselves proportionately and firmly. Uh, and uh, he also said, alongside the other vital measures introduced in the National Security Bill, the new foreign influence registration scheme will make it harder and riskier to operate covertly in the UK at the behest of a foreign power. Uh, it will also increase uh, openness and transparency around the scale of foreign influence uh, in our political affairs and make it harder for adversaries to undermine our democracy. And finally, he said, the Foreign Influence Registration Scheme is a modern power designed to tackle a modern threat and I welcome its inclusion in the National Security Bill. So my question is, who is it they're going after here, Brian? 
is it uh, people that are working? Well, it's not diplomatic staff because they've they've already mentioned that there's an absolute exclusion on diplomatic staff. So it, it's not. This isn't about spying. This is about something else. And the only thing that I can think of is people that are labelled as being disinformation purveyors. Well, that that comes to mind. I was thinking as you were going through this, and and I think that they're also targeting anyone who is trying to do business overseas because the moment you've got you've got um, some form of business arrangement, suppose you're importing toys from China, you're going to come under this net. Uh, whereas we, we've got the bizarre situation of senior government officials with very close relations uh, with China, or, or we've had donations from Russia, even into the Conservative Party in large amounts. So I don't think this is to catch people at the top of the tree. It's it's basically about throwing a net over people who are trying to live their lives at a lower level. That's uh, how I take it. Uh, and so there are two tiers on this. Uh, tier, no, sorry, Stephanie, that's the wrong. Just take that off again, please. There are two tiers on this. Uh, and uh, the first is results in a two-year prison sentence or fine if you don't uh, abide by it. And the more serious tier is a five-year prison sentence uh, or fine and or fine if you don't register yourself as a foreign influencer. Now we bring Brian Leveson back on screen here. Uh, another three years, super is what he didn't say, but he has been given another term as the uh, investigatory powers commissioner. Uh, so he's there to make sure that whenever investigatory powers, this is bulk data collection, for example, by GCHQ or the UK Health Security Agency, uh, that they that data collection is uh, is done and those investigative powers are used within the limit of the legislation. And I, I just want to add, and if we go back to the time of that inquiry, of course, the political charity Common Purpose was working worldwide to bring in other students in, into UK and other professionals. So, so right, that's a previous role, but, but yes. well, yes. So, but this 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 man, yes. Yes. So anyway, look, he, he has published a report. Yeah. It was from January this year. So let's bring it on screen. This is a report published on the UK's use of covert powers. And the, the basic uh, tenet of this report is that the government and the, the intelligence services have been operating within the limits of the statute and everybody should be very pleased. But uh, there was this one quote which stood out to me. And that was this, for the first time since 2017, the use of covert human intelligence sources by law enforcement agencies has increased from the 1,866 authorizations in 2019 to 2,086 uh, authorizations in 2020. Uh, and I just remind everybody why that's important, because we now have a piece of legislation that went through uh, in last year, uh, the Covert Human Intelligence Brackets Criminal Conduct Act, which basically allows uh, agents authorized to operate under this investigatory powers legislation to commit and, uh, crimes and break the law uh, David, because uh, certain people are allowed to act uh, to act above the law uh, in modern Britain. Yes, and if we saw most more of it, then would that be um, an attempt to infiltrate the anti-lockdown movement? That's a very good question. Uh, of course, we we can never find that out because it would be considered, uh, you know, national security, and so freedom of information would be. Uh, shut down at that point. So uh, I just find this really, if we just put the, the graphic back on screen there, just really want to drive home the idea that 
we've got to be looking at all this legislation in the round and not looking at individual acts because we're starting to see the effect of it coming through now with more and more use of uh, intelligence gathering, data collection, bulk data collection and covert human intelligence uh, activity. It's getting very dangerous out there. Very. Yes. Okay, let's uh, come back to Debbie then. And uh, Debbie, some emails this week. I sent a couple of emails. Well, I sent a, more than more than a couple of emails, but I just wanted to ho uh, focus on on a couple. Uh, one was because of the story that Alex um, was uh, reporting last week with regards to people not being able to get into Tesco without a QR code or a club card. So I decided to write to the CEO. So that was one of my emails. And my other email was to invite um, Dr. Henrietta Hughes uh, for an interview. She's the Patient Safety Commissioner, and we haven't, we haven't managed to track her down as yet, uh, but I thought it would be only too polite to invite her. And bingo, we've got one acknowledgement. So Tesco have now referred us to their press department, and they're going to come back with an answer. So watch this space. Um, and we haven't had an acknowledgement from Dr. Henrietta Hughes. However, there is an invitation to everybody to join Dr. Henrietta Hughes in conversation with Rachel Power on Wednesday, the 30th of November, 2022. Now, this is an Eventbrite um, event, so you can just um, apply for it and you can be in conversation with Dr. Henrietta Hughes. What's interesting there is Rachel Power is actually CEO of the Patients Association. And I didn't know about the Patients Association, but when I looked a little bit deeper into it, I find that the president is Sir Robert Francis QC. So we'll just hold it there. I'm doing a little bit more digging into the Patients Association. So that's the result of two of my emails. But more worryingly, I'm, I'm again yet concerned about the NHS because over the news and in the last couple of days, they've been using the term war rooms. And um, I've been, my ears have been pricking up and I've now seen a report and indeed it's on the NHS website that there's going to be 24 hour control centers. Now you can look at that and I've highlighted the box that you might want to freeze the screen and read. But basically what this means is that this, these are going to be data driven war rooms. And you know, I'm taking that as literal, Those, that's their language, not mine. Um, this is going to mean that they're going to divert ambulances to um, hospitals that can manage to cope. So you could end up with patients being diverted many, many miles away from home. It also means that beds are going to be tracked. So every single person in every single bed will be tracked. It also means too that respiratory hubs are going to start popping up in your high street or in your local town or village. So you won't need to go to um, hospital at all. So this is what this 24 hour control um, service looks like. But on top of that, it means that they're estimating there's gonna be a 55,000 fewer ambulance journeys to hospital because they're gonna roll out something called an expanded fall service. So if somebody falls at home and maybe it's an elderly person and they press their panic button, then an ambulance or a, another unit will go to those people to help them rather than call a 999 ambulance and transport them to hospital. So that's what these war rooms mean. And these are being set up as we speak. Um, so I don't know what your thoughts on war rooms are, gentlemen. 
Well, I'd like to know if you're suggesting that, that people are going to be treated in their homes, uh, how is that going to happen if they've broken a bone, for example? Well, a really good question. But of course, don't forget, we're going to be having autonomous am ambulances and they're going to be having X-ray scanners and all sorts of equipment on board. So, you know, when we take it back to Butterfly, where we've got probes and ultrasound scans that can be done by yourself soon we'll be told that you know basically we've got to take an x-ray of ourselves before we call anybody more than likely i know that i know that sounds ridiculous but this is really the times that we're heading to and we're also heading to times of covid as well again no we couldn't be no no of course not we are um you can see the fear starting to ramp up already and people are reporting that there's going to be a COVID swarm. Um, there's going to be uh, all sorts of things that are going to collapse the NHS. And uh, this is, of course, going towards the twindemic, which is what we've been talking about. But interestingly, this new subvariant, which you can see on the right there, is called uh, XBB. And we have talked about uh, disease X before. So I'm just wondering um, if this could be the disease X. But what does concern me is that at the moment we're now rolling out the jab for the over 50s. It's like, let's jab, jab, jab as, as much as we possibly can. And, you know, this is clearly um, not, in my opinion, a good idea. And what worries me is that it appears to be those that have been vaccinated that are exhibiting case, uh, cases of COVID or are testing positive for COVID. So getting boosted, which is what the government are advocating at the moment would, in my opinion, increase the cases of COVID. But of course, that would be all skewed data. So, um, yeah, watch out for that. So we're boostering. And also, you know, I want to just remind um, our viewers and listeners that I had a conversation with Jeremy Hunt on Zoom um, on UK Column. You can go and find it on um, the UK Column News, 21st of March, 2022. It's just after an hour in, I think. Um, but this little, this little piece of video went viral. Um, it went all over the place because I put Jeremy Hunt on the spot with regards to serious adverse reactions. And he said that he was very concerned about serious adverse reactions. He would uh, make, uh, well, he would put into motion um, an investigation or questions to his committee, and that has never happened. So Jeremy Hunt, when you asked Mike, when you asked me the other day, was he numerate? I would say, actually, no, because he's ignoring over 2,000 deaths, over 400,000 reports. So obviously, he's not understanding the figures very well. But um, maybe you might disagree with me on that. Uh, don't think so. Well, and if we, we can't trust him, uh, from that aspect, we can't trust him when he's uh, working in the background with uh, economic advisors. Yes. Uh, so, uh, Debbie, tell us about the heart group. Right. Now, this is, the, please, will you um, freeze the screen, everybody, for the next two screenshots? Um, freeze the screen and I'll give you time to read it yourself. So, I just want to thank Cheryl very, very much. Now, Cheryl is one of our UK column viewers and listeners. And she is involved with the pharmaceutical industry. So she's kept a very low profile. But in the background, she has been working super, super hard because what she noticed was that the Americans or a group of American scientists and doctors had put forward a legal freedom of information to the FDA for the Pfizer documentation. 
and they received it. That's where the data dump came from. Remember all of those thousands of documents that were meant to be locked up with Pfizer for 75 years, all of a sudden they had to release them. And Cheryl has been working really, really closely and so, honestly, she spent so much time on this, working with the doctors at heart, the amazing Dr. Ros Jones and the incredible Professor Norman Fenton, who we've um, interviewed and loads of other names that you'll recognize on that list have supported this legal, this legal um, request for an FOI to Dame June Rain and the MHRA to release all the AstraZeneca documents. Now, this is potentially huge. If you want to see the letter again in full, it is on the heartgroup.org website. But Cheryl, as a UK column viewer and listener, has very kindly given us permission to show this first with regards to the media. And the principle behind it is that the FOI is to release information unless there is a good reason not to. We have to remember that AstraZeneca, 58% of vaccine adverse reactions have come from the AstraZeneca. It's been rolled out more in this country and around the world than anything else. So that's one to really keep an eye on. And please share. Um, Dr. David Cartland's also a signatory on there, as are many other names you'll recognize. So please keep an eye on that. Um, okay, now, Debbie, uh, just uh, watching the clock here, uh, all parliamentary sorry, all party parliamentary group, uh, well, for vaccine damage, does it exist? Well, I'm, I'm very glad that this is, this is going ahead. You'll see there that um, we've got the UK CV family who organised this in the very first place with Sir Christopher Chope. Now, this meeting was originally scheduled for September, but because of the passing of the Queen and because of rail strikes, it was cancelled. But um, there were due to be 70 vaccine injured people attending this group. And I'm just a little bit concerned that the focus has moved away from vaccine injury and more into drop the vaccines completely, which of course we want to. And Dr. Asim Malhotra is taking center stage here, um, but I'm quite saddened because the meeting was rearranged at very short notice, which now means that many of the vaccine injured can't actually be there. So a bit worrying. Yes. Okay. Well, look, thank you for that. And we'll report more on that in due course. <laughs> I've no doubt. Uh, thanks, Debbie. Right. Okay. If you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there where you can pick something up at the UK column shop. Uh, but do please share the material on the various platforms. Okay. Well, just wanted to highlight new articles going up on the UK column website so you can see uh, or you can read rather how a university, its major funders and a newspaper killed research into the toxicity of aluminium adjuvants in vaccines. And also a very interesting article about the rise of uh, Jeff Bezos. So um, keep your eye open on the UK column. A lot of uh, new material going up and uh, that is all as a result of the tremendous support from our viewers. Um, now, after the news today, we're playing out part one of a three part interview that I did recently with a lady called Sandy Adams. It's about Agenda 2030 and uh, what is being planned for the world. Part one, I was actually astonished fairly early on in this interview 
Um, you're going to you'll be able to watch it immediately after the news today. Well, that's the, so we need to say to people that we're not doing an extra today. We're going to we're going to play this out for UK column members uh, instead. Uh, it'll be up for everybody on the website later on this afternoon. Uh, but uh, uh, we tried to play this out yesterday and had a slight technical problem. So we want everybody to see that. OK, but um, yeah, absolutely fantastic information from uh, Sandy. And she's been researching this subject for a great many years. So tremendous interview and encourage people to watch all three parts, which will cycle through. Well, let's have a little look at um, uh, what's been happening in Ukraine. This is just a, a rough overview of latest reports but so people can understand what is really happening. And the key one is Ukraine is now in the dark. Russia has destroyed about 30 percent of the electricity generation capacity in Ukraine. And the image on the screen, if we can just pop it back up, of course, is a big black hole um, uh, for Ukraine. You can see the lights are on in countries surrounding Ukraine, for Ukraine very dark. Um, but of course, remember that uh, this has happened in a few days, but the BBC told us that the Russians were running out of both weapons and ammunition. So another falsehood by the uh, BBC. Um, but let's look at this. So the Russians have destroyed 30% of this power generation at almost no cost to themselves. They do, did lose an aircraft, but most of this has been done with sophisticated weapons, which have caused the Russians themselves no losses whatsoever. Uh, Russia's completed its uh, partial mobilization of 300,000, and those forces are now deploying inside Ukraine or inside the Donbass region. And uh, also the Russians are putting smaller numbers into Belarus. Um, the front lines have been stabilized and Ukrainian attacks have invariably been beaten. Well, they have been beaten back at all points, although some areas still have some pretty vicious fighting. Um, but the front lines stabilized, no question of it. Russia continues to have a complete air superiority over the whole of Ukraine. And that, of course, is a huge problem for the Ukrainians. They're unable to defend against the Russian missiles or, it seems, the drone strikes. And Russia continues to demonstrate it has no shortages in weapons or ammunition or missiles. Uh, on the contrary, Ukraine is suffering severe shortages. And it's now been re widely reported in Western media that the US, UK and EU do not themselves have the capacity to replace those losses. And this is a very significant thing. It's now becoming clear that Russia has successfully countered Elon Musk's Starlink satellite communication system, which means that they can simply wipe out Ukrainian battlefield communications, which is going to be another huge problem. And uh, Russia is now clearing the Kyrgyzstan region to save civilian lives and facilitate the destruction of a further Ukrainian offensive should it materialize. But all previous Ukrainian attacks in this area have failed. Now, why is Russia clearing out civilians? Well, we've got to remember that, of course, Ukraine has used civilians and civilian facilities to hide their military forces. And uh, what Russia is doing here is removing the opportunity for Ukraine to do this in what would appear to uh, be a future significant battle. But of course, for the BBC, uh, this is all about uh, Russia losing, supposedly. So here was the headline, Ukraine war, Russia begins evacuation from Kherson in the south. 
and uh, a tremendous article by the BBC, credit where it's due, because the propaganda line is, is truly excellent. Do have a read of this article. And um, if we just have a look at it, um, this is one of the sentences. Tens of thousands of civilians and Russian appointed officials are being moved out of Ukraine's southern region ahead of a Ukrainian offensive. So this gives the reader the, the ideas that the Russians are retreating, really, and that there is going to be another substantial Ukrainian offensive. Whereas the truth is, as I've just said, that every uh, attempt by the Ukrainians to conduct an offensive in this area has failed with really heavy losses for them. Uh, the BBC says the transfer or deportation of civilians by an occupying power from occupied territory is considered a war crime. So that's the uh, key spin on how the BBC th sees things. But uh, I'm just emphasising here that the reality is that Ukraine has used civilians and civilian facilities to cover its military operations. So this appears to indicate the Russians are very, very serious in bringing uh, a major weight of military force to apply in the area. But if we go to the week, this was uh, only an hour old a couple of hours ago. Uh, here was the headline, why Russia losing everywhere else in Ukraine is still trying to capture Bakhmut. Uh, have a read of the article itself, but uh, the war in Ukraine hasn't exactly been going Russia's way for the past six weeks. They've completely forgotten, it appears, about the damage to the infrastructure and the mobilisation. So I'm just popping a question mark on that one. And if you get to the end of the article, uh, one part of this says that, well, um, the Ukrainians are going to give the Russians a bloody nose over Bakhmut. And why are the Russians bothering to fight over this? Uh, but the final end of the article is an admission that actually the, Rus the Ukrainian forces have taken such punishment, they are now starting to withdraw themselves. So uh, basically, Western media uh, following its own uh, propaganda, uh, but quite clearly, Russia is not losing in any way. But will we still have a country called Ukraine in a few months? Uh, it's getting increasingly likely that Ukraine will not exist in its present form. Uh, a proxy war will have destroyed it. Uh, David, have you got any thoughts just before we move on? Well, I mean, the, 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 recent, the recent Ukrainian attacks in Kyrgyzstan were, of course, uh, successful, at least up to a point. And the, 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 the factor of 300,000 Russians being mobilised was forced on Russia uh, by, by those successes. But it's that fact, that mobilisation is a huge game changer. This is where um, I've been suggesting that we've had three, three phases of this war and we're now potentially em entering a fourth. And I don't think that fourth phase is in, in the interest of the Ukrainian people. Uh, that's uh, why I, I find it so difficult to believe that there's not a, a serious attempt to find a peaceful resolution at this point. Uh, whilst uh, the U Ukrainian population, the Ukrainian country, still maintains some viability, um, simply driving on into uh, a winter war uh, seems um, a, 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 a decision that's completely against the interests of the Ukrainians themselves. And they, therefore, you have to wonder at the politicians at the head of the Ukrainian uh, state that are making those decisions. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, lots more to discuss on that. I'll just mention that there's been a report 
the damage to the gas pipeline extends over 50 meters. This is a, as a result of investigation by the Norwegians, and I think it's reported in the Swedish paper. Um, so four key blasts over 50 meters. This says it was professionally done, and I think it makes it even less likely that this was some renegade group that destroyed the pipeline. My money is on the fact that it was destroyed by the West. Okay, let's bring uh, the Twitter uh, header for the UK embassy in Bucharest uh, on screen. Uh, and of course, uh, naturally, the UK stands with Ukraine. As you can see there, that is their, their key thing. Um, but they have just pushed out a tender. And David, I'm very interested in your thoughts on this. Uh, so let's just have a look at the text or let some of the text for this. The British embassy in Bucharest invites project proposals to support the delivery of activities and outcomes on building a supportive environment for LGBTQ plus community in Romania. This is on behalf of a small group of potential project sponsors, including the Embassy of Ireland in Bucharest. This project is part of a wider British Embassy portfolio of projects which seeks to support the Romanian government and civil society in promoting LGBTQ plus rights across the world. It also complements the work in this field being carried out by the further the other participating project sponsors. So their objective is to promote a better understanding of LGBTQ plus issues for potential allies of LGBTQ plus people uh, through building a more constructive public discussion around the LGBT plus community and uh, promoting more uh, inclusive social attitudes. This should include improving understanding for parents, uh, colleagues, friends, as well as broader society. So David, my question to you is, uh, setting aside the issue of whether uh, LGBTQ plus should be promoted at all, what business does the UK government uh, and the Irish government have to uh, promote any political campaign in a foreign country? This is, this is it. I mean, this, this is the key, the key understanding that people seem to lack, that BLM, LGBTQ, they are political campaigns. They, they portray themselves as being simply one warm-hearted goodness, but it's not. It's a political campaign with political objectives. And yes, why are we, why are we promoting it in, in Romania? Uh, why is uh, various police forces across the UK uh, promoting it in the UK with uh, logos on their police cars? All of these are very good questions. Now, if you take that it's a political campaign, if you take that it's actually a core a religion, you know, if you get into into this sort of belief system that you're you've, you're looking at, it is religious in its nature. Um, then you're looking at something that's trying to change society by changing the beliefs of the people. Now, that might be a good thing or might be a bad thing. I don't think it should be a secret thing. Yeah. I, I think it's clearly the use of soft power and it's subversive because the aim is to actually create friction and breakdown within countries by, by uh, introducing what is essentially a foreign viewpoint. Yeah. Yes. OK, Debbie, uh, let's move on then. And uh, well, the introduction of smart meters for gas and electricity, of course, is well understood, but perhaps people are less aware of the same for water meters. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as you know, I've always got my ear to the ground when it comes to water. But yes, we seem to be having uh, these water meters are going to come into force. Now, what are water meters? 
Well, they're equipped apparently with electronic computing units. Um, they say that they're going to be able to stop leaks because, of course, the water companies are being hauled over the coals for, for leaks. But actually, it's about tracking. I mean, let's be sensible about this. Let's be realistic. This is about tracking. But even more worrying, not just the fact that we're all going to get a smart water meter, Thames Water are making it compulsory. Now, I don't know if people within the Thames Water area are aware of this, but you can see on the right if your borough is, is um, involved in this, and most of the London boroughs are, and it even goes out as far as Guildford, Swindon, Waverley. And you don't need to be in to have these water meters installed. They're installed in the pavement, so you may lose water for about you know five or ten minutes, perhaps. But that's, all, that's the only difference you'll see. Before you know what, you'll have a compulsory smart water meter. So I just wanted to make people aware that these were coming in and for people on, in Thames area specifically to maybe ask some questions. Okay, thank you. Uh, and David, let's come back on the economic issues then. Uh, and uh, well, LNG. Well, yes, this, this is uh, LNG tankers here are queuing up to get into Europe. Um, and this is because we don't have enough capacity to unload them. Uh, here we see oilprice.com, uh, Irina Slav reporting, and she says uh, there's, there's, Spain has declared an exceptional operational situation. Uh, several dozen LNG tankers queue for its regasification terminals. So you've got something like 35 tankers queuing off the coast of Spain. Um, so the quoting here, um, the uh, uh, liquefied natural gas management chief exec, uh, flex LNG management chief executive, uh, said, quote, floating storage levels in LNG shipping is at an all-time high, uh, with levels slightly more than 2.5 million tonnes tied up in floating storage. So the, the US is exporting uh, gas to Europe to replace the gas that uh, is no longer coming from Russia, uh, but there's not the facilities to offload it. And this shows why the people from BlackRock and others who are used to high-frequency trading and, and, and trading financial in implements instruments might forget that economies are real things. Time is an issue. It takes time to build plants to offload uh, tankers so that you can supply gas from the United States to Europe. It takes time to build the infrastructure and time's a very significant factor. And that's forgotten and the real um, the real assets, the real capital are real things, not just not just digital zeros and ones in a computer, not just pieces of paper, real, actual, physical capital goods. And here you see they're lacking. We had equivalent capital goods that were allow, was allowing gas to be supplied from Russia, but we blew those up for political reasons. And um, when I say we, we think it was in the United States, but no one's actually coming clean on this. Um, and this effect on the economy is very profound because it simply cannot be sorted by government diktat or by printing money. It takes time and real effort and real human expertise to create these assets again and to repair the damage that's been done. And during that time, everyone is poorer. Yes. Uh, but in the meantime, people protesting uh, in Europe... Yes, it's it's not just here that the pain's been felt. It's all around the world and it's all around Europe. So here we see uh, Euronews reporting hundreds of protests in Berlin as the cost of living continues to rise. Hundreds of people affected by the cost of living crisis gathered outside the federal 
uh, Chancellor building in Berlin over the weekend to protest what they saw as the increasingly worsening situation in people's lives. Some demonstrators held signs calling for immediate help for the poor, while other placards read, we need healthy food and abolish poverty. Well, good luck with the last one, but healthy food in a very affluent society, you think it's not an, un an unreasonable ambition to have. Uh, and we can see here how the German police dealt with people daring to call for healthy food and an end to the cost of living crisis. So there you go, protest for food in Germany and some very nice caring professional people from the state will come and punch you in the kidneys and in the head. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, that's uh, just what we need, isn't it? Yeah, it's, no. well, it, it, it's terrible. And of course, this is what should be reported over national media in the uh, UK, because uh, what is on the rise in Germany? It doesn't look uh, particularly good. Uh, so, David, one graphic and one video to end. Yes, um, it's coming up on Halloween and it's always a very difficult time. Uh, it's, it's, a real, it's a real thorn in the issue of what do you dress up as? And uh, I think this particular example uh, is, to, is going to inspire lots of people. Costume of the year, Sniffer Joe. So here we see uh, Joe um, uh, groping this, this young lady and sniffing her hair. And that, that, that does cover rather where we're at with uh, the standard of uh, world leadership these days. Um, and I've got to finish on, um, we've got a little video. It's very wonderful. It's based on a, on a piece of economic uh, lunacy from the United States. But it applies generally, it applies here, it applies in Scotland, it applies all across the UK. Um, the specifics of America came from the fact that, well, Joe Biden was trying to buy favours and buy votes and buy support from the young. So he was offering basically debt forgiveness on, uh, on student loans and other handouts. And anyone who had worked hard and didn't need to get forgiveness, well, they would have the pleasure of paying for it all. Well, this has been set to... Um, uh, music here by Reason TV, and it's very wonderful. Tuition free! Ladies and gentlemen, the candidates. Does adulthood dismay you? Commuted to college for discounted knowledge. So large debts he would not accrue. Lived at home, did some chores. Now he'll also pay yours. Wait, I didn't agree. Cause I'll give all his money to you. I already paid off my loans. All this money. Now wait just one second. You will get from Bob. In a basement for four years. All this money, if I get this job. My school didn't have a rock climbing wall.
Okay, very good. Did you enjoy that? Well, it's a good way to get <laughs> uh, to get the messages out, that's for sure. Okay. Yes, we'll leave it there. We're going to leave it there for today. So David and uh, Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you as always to our audience, wherever you are in the world. And uh, we're going to say, particularly we are thinking of the people in Ukraine, um, but we have to say it's time for you to consider who your friends are in the West and whether you've uh, whether you've been duped, I think, is the answer. We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.